Good morning. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you guys this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I am one of the pastors here at Veritas State, and we're so glad that you're here this morning. Welcome. Um, We hope you feel welcome. We hope you feel loved and served well this morning. Um, I'd ask you, just take take a moment um, to fill out a Connect card. So you actually didn't receive this when you walked in. We usually have them in our bulletins, but we have half-sheet bulletins right now, so they're not inside there. There's some, I think, back on this table here, back on the welcome table uh, where you walked in at. Uh, If you would, just take a few moments, grab one of those, fill that out. Let us know how we can be praying for you, how we can get in touch with you. Uh, Maybe we can get together with you, grab some coffee, uh, and uh, explain a little about what God is doing in our church family and invite you to to be a part of what God is doing in here uh, here in our church family. Uh, We'd love to be able to do that if you would allow us to. Um, But even if uh, you don't uh, let us know how to get in touch with you. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Uh, we'd love to be able to pray for you this week. And so make sure to grab one of those and jot a few things down there. All right, we are looking at Matthew 5, 6. Matthew 5, 6. We are continuing for the fifth Sunday our sermon series in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And we are still in the introduction to Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in uh, what is called, often called, the the Beatitudes. Um, And we are in um, Matthew 5, 6, the fourth Beatitude of Jesus. And so once you get there, um, I know I just asked you to sit down, but if you want to stand up uh, with your Bibles open for the reading of God's Word, out of respect and, and honor for God's Word, and let's listen with reverence and joy, because this is the inspired word of our God. These are the words of Jesus. And so let's listen to these words as if Jesus was standing himself right here saying these words to us. These words come to us with that very same authority this morning. And so let's listen with reverence and joy to the words of our King. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we reverently submit to the words of your Son, here this morning, and we ask that by your Spirit that you would convict and comfort and invade our lives and hearts with the reality of your Word. Lord, let your Word be powerful in our midst this morning. Let my words be truthful, and let my words honor your Word. We pray these things for your glory 
for our good and for the good of those that we are going to go out and love and serve this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of happiness. So obviously the famous words of the Declaration of the Independence, and I was thinking about these words this last week, and, and um, I found it fascinating that among these words, on this short list of unalienable rights, was the pursuit of happiness. Along with life, along with liberty, according to our, the founding fathers of the United States, the pursuit of happiness is, a, is, is fundamental and elemental to human existence. And of course, as we've been repeating over the last several weeks, as we've been looking at the Beatitudes and looking at this word translated here as blessed, which is a word that means happy, a word that means thriving, a word that means flourishing, a word that means uh, uh, a, a complete blessed life, we know that this pursuit of happiness is indeed part and parcel of being a human being. We all pursue happiness, just as naturally as we pursue eating or breathing or drinking, we all pursue happiness. It's what we're wired for as human beings. We're wired to desire and seek and hunger and thirst for happiness. I mean, this is what we call the Edenic ache. We, we see the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, and we ache for that. We long for that. We look at the new heaven, new earth described in Revelation 21 22, and we ache for that. We long for that. That's what we want deep down in the pit of our souls. We want that happy, blessed, flourishing life. We want that. Of course, by what we mean about happiness, what we mean when we say happiness, is not this temporal fleeting feelings of pleasure so often associated with happiness in our context. We mean human flourishing. We mean lives that are, have deep and lasting meaning and satisfaction, living the lives that we were created and redeemed to live, living life as God intended it, living the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us. We all desire this. It's worth uh, quoting Jonathan Pennington again at this point. He wrote this in a journal article uh, some time ago. He said, Human flourishing alone is the idea that encompasses all human activities and goals because there's nothing so natural and inescapable as the desire to live and to live in peace, security, love, health, and happiness. These are not merely cultural values or the desire of a certain people or time period. The desire for human flourishing motivates everything humans do, both belief in religion and the rejection of it. Monogamous marriage and a promiscuous lifestyle, waging war and making peace, studying history and creating art, planting fields and building skyscrapers. All human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by a desire for life and flourishing individually and corporately. And he's right. 
deep down in the core of every single human being, you know this is resonating with you right now, deep down in your heart, what you truly desire and long for is to live in a state of blessedness, happiness, flourishing, thriving, shalom. To live in a state of happiness, not temporary, fleeting feelings of pleasure, but human flourishing. As we continue to look at these beatitude statements from Jesus in the introduction on the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Jesus says that this happiness, this human flourishing, this makarios is the word translated as blessedness here, the state of blessedness does not come to those who pursue happiness. Everybody does that. That's not the promise here. The promise is not those who hunger and thirst for happiness are happy. Everybody does that. And there are all sorts of means and methods and pursuits and passions that people give themselves to in order to find happiness, but rarely do people actually find it. And that's because they're looking in the wrong places. What we need, what we desperately need as human beings is an authority on the subject to come and give us the inside scoop. We desperately need someone who knows how to find true happiness, someone who is an authority on the subject to come and reveal to us this way of life that we all desire, enter Jesus in the Beatitude statements. And he says, looking here at verse 6, he says that true happiness, true human flourishing, true blessedness belongs to those who hunger and thirst and pursue not just happiness, but righteousness. The pursuit of righteousness is the way to happiness. Again, we've repeatedly said this, that the, the way to happiness is low and cross-shaped. It's not easy. He's not, the, he's not promising an easy life here. That's not the promise of this, this happiness that he's, he's giving here. He's, he's calling us to self-denial and to pick up our crosses and to follow Jesus, which will lead to a life of persecution and lack in life. It's, it's, that's just part of it. But, but those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they, they are those who are happy because they will be deeply and lastingly satisfied. So let's jump in. What, we need to know what righteousness is. What is righteousness? He says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. They are those who are blessed, makarios, happy. So, so what is righteousness? Then we need to know what it means to hunger and thirst for it. And we need to know also what kind of life here, now, and in the future those who hunger and thirst for righteousness can expect. So let's look at a desired righteousness, a deep longing, and a delivered satisfaction. A desired righteousness, a deep longing, in a delivered satisfaction. First things first, we need to know what this word righteousness means. What is meant here by righteousness? What do God's people hunger and thirst for? What, what are God's people deeply longing for? Now, this word translated as, as righteousness here is used in a few different ways in the New Testament. Paul uses it a little bit differently than Luke, who uses it a little bit differently than James, who uses it a little bit differently than John. Uh, sometimes, depending on the context, it's translated as justice. Uh, other times, like here in the ESV and in the Beatitudes, it's translated as righteousness. If you look at the Old Testament, at the Old Testament prophets, the word is used a lot, and it's typically 
This, this word righteousness or justice is used a lot and sometimes in different ways. Uh, particularly, the, the prophet Isaiah, he uses this word a lot to talk about the nature of God's kingdom that is coming in the Messiah. And to further complicate things for us, uh, this word has fallen in hard times in our current cultural moment. Like typically when people currently hear the word righteousness, they actually just automatically think of self-righteousness. Um, they, you know, like if you told your average neighbor or coworker that you just really wanted to be a righteous person, they would think you a religious nut. They would think you a self-righteous, pharisaical Christian. They would think you, like the PR department for righteousness is struggling right now. Um, but if you look at the word, the way it's used by Jesus, the way it's used by the apostles and prophets, you'd see that true righteousness is actually antithetical to self-righteousness. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in the Sermon on the Mount here. So what does, it, what does it mean? What does righteousness mean? Well, at its most basic level, righteousness simply means conformity to a standard. So there's a standard, there's a way that things ought to be, and when a person, when a people, when the world is in conformity to that standard, they are righteous. And for us as Christians, we know what that standard is. The, the standard for our lives and for the world is God's will. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray those words, we're praying for the earth and everything in it to conform perfectly to God's will. We're praying for the advent of perfect righteousness. Literally, we're praying for everything to be put right. We're praying for rightness to prevail on the earth. And so that's a kind of big picture definition of righteousness, but let's get down into the nitty-gritty. Often this word righteousness is, is used to speak about different kind of what we might call categories of righteousness, depending on the context. So sometimes this word is, is used <coughs> in the New Testament uh, to talk about being put right, to being put in right standing before God. Uh, to speak about someone in right relationship with God. So we could call this legal righteousness. Legal righteousness. The theological term for this is justification. Um, justification. Anyone remember, what are some books in the New Testament that talk about this doctrine of justification? Anyone remember books that talk about this? You can say it. Galatians, baby. So we spent a long time in Galatians just a few years ago, didn't we? We spent a long time in Galatians, and, and there in Galatians, we saw the Apostle Paul argue passionately and brilliantly for the doctrine of justification through faith alone. Justification means to be pardoned by God and to be declared righteous in his sight. It has nothing to do with someone actually being a righteous person, in all reality, but legally, they are considered righteous by God because of Christ's righteousness being credited to the believer's account before they've done any good works or bad works or anything else. This, this is why we are forgiven and welcomed into God's family as his very own children. This is why our sin does not define us and our pasts do not define us. Our brokenness does not define us because before God, as Christians, we are considered legally righteous. We are counted as righteous. And how does this happen? 
How does this happen? It happens because of Christ, who is perfectly righteous. He was treated as a sinner on the cross so that we who are sinners would be treated as righteous. As we just read about in 2 Corinthians 5.21 a few moments ago. It says that Christ became sin on the cross so that we who are sinners would become the righteousness of God. We would be legally righteous. And so now this legal righteousness is not something we need to earn or deserve. It's freely given to us when we simply trust in God. Romans 4.3 says that when we believe in God, when we trust him, that we are counted as righteous. And this is, according to Paul and according to David, this is actually the truly blessed and happy, flourishing state to be in. As according to David and Paul, Paul goes on to, in Romans 4, 8, to quote a psalm of David, and he says, blessed, makarios, it's the same word here, makarios, happy, flourishing, is the man against whom God does not count his sin. Makarios, makarios are those who are counted righteous through faith. Those who possess legal righteousness through faith are living their best life because God has counted them as being perfectly righteous in his sight in Christ. But then that's not the only way the word is used in Scripture. Sometimes it's used to talk about what we might call moral righteousness. Moral righteousness. In contrast to legal righteousness, moral righteousness is not someone being considered righteous, but they're actually being a righteous person. The two go hand in hand in the Christian life. Those who God justifies, he also sanctifies. Those whom he saves from the guilt of sin, he also saves from the power of sin. Those who are given the gift of legal righteousness are also given the gift of a new heart and a new will to live a life of moral righteousness. They are transformed by the power and presence of the Spirit. And this moral righteousness is actually what we're exhorted to much in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5.10, Jesus' disciples are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Matthew 5.20, Jesus exhorts his disciples to a righteousness that exceeds, that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 6.1, Christ's disciples are to practice righteousness, meaning we are to do righteous deeds and not to be seen and praised by others, but sincerely from the heart. Matthew 6.33, Jesus exhorts his disciples to, rather than seeking first worldly goods and worldly pleasures, to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. And see, we'll, we'll get more into this in the coming weeks, but this moral righteousness that Jesus exhorts us to in the Sermon on the Mount is not a mere appearance of righteousness. It's not a partial righteousness. It's what we're calling a whole person righteousness. He's calling us into a life that goes, a righteous life that goes down to the very core of who we are in our hearts and souls. It's a righteousness that, that, that permeates not only our actions and words, but also our thoughts and motivations. The kind of righteousness that Jesus exhorts us to is a moral righteousness that renovates and renews the entirety of our being from the works of our hands to the words of our mouths to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And still, there's another category of righteousness that the scriptures speak about. You could call this social righteousness. Social righteousness is righteousness in our dealings with other people. 
Indeed, the, the practicing of righteousness that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6.1 includes social righteousness. Since he goes on to talk about the way and manner in which we give financially to the poor and to those in need. Furthermore, Jesus will go on to describe this kind of social righteousness in his parable about the final judgment in Matthew 25. Listen to what he says about what will take place in the final judgment and what he will say to those who practice social righteousness. Matthew 25, 31 through 40. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels will be with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, the righteous, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, say, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he goes on to say that those who did not manifest this social righteousness described here will be condemned and cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. You see, this social righteousness is an important category that we must not overlook or neglect in our lives as Christians and as a local church family. As Christians, of course, we long and hunger and thirst for right relationship with God, to be justified, to receive legal righteousness. And of course, we long for a greater moral righteousness, personal holiness, and we're progressively receiving it by Christ through His Spirit. We also long for and hunger for and thirst for social righteousness to prevail in our church and in churches across the city and in this world. John Stott once wrote this. He said, Biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. And social righteousness, as we learn from the law and the prophets, is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression, together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in home and family affairs. Thus, Christians are committed to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to a righteous God. These three are, are all kinds of righteousness with the, which the scriptures describe and speak to. And so a question that might be coming up in your mind is, okay, so what kind of righteousness is Jesus talking about here in this beatitude? Is he talking about legal righteousness? Is he talking about moral righteousness? Is he talking about social righteousness? I would simply answer that question with yes. Yes. I actually want to wrap these three kinds of righteousness up 
and put them, describe them in one phrase that we might call kingdom righteousness. I actually wanted to call it eschatological righteousness, but I won't do that to you. Kingdom righteousness. Because that's what was promised in the advent of the coming of the kingdom of God by the prophets. Now, particularly in Isaiah, you know, what, what was promised and what Jesus is announcing is the righteousness that the kingdom of God brings. It's a righteousness that puts his people in right relationship with him, legal righteousness, that places his righteousness within his people, his moral righteousness, and that causes his people to be in right relationship with one another and to seek to establish his righteousness in the world, social righteousness. You know, one of the key texts that you need to read and understand in order for you to properly understand the Beatitudes here is the second half of the prophet Isaiah. Like, if you really want a good good grasp of the Beatitudes, this week, set aside some time to read Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, because in those chapters, you're going to see God's promises delivered through the prophet Isaiah uh, and descriptions about the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom that he's coming to bring. And in these chapters in Isaiah, you see all sorts of promises to the poor and the mourning and the hungry and the thirsty. And you see all sorts of promises that are coming when God's righteousness will prevail in the, in the earth at the arrival of of his kingdom. So really, I'm telling you, like, take some time this week and read Isaiah 40 through 66, and perhaps grab a highlighter, grab a pen or a pencil, if that's your thing, and make a note every time you see the word righteousness, every time you see the word thirst or hunger, every time you see any text speaking about satisfaction, underline it. And what you're going to see, it's going to help you to, to understand this particular beatitude really well, like, you're, you're going to see what the context of this beatitude here from Jesus. Because the promises contained there are spoken to those who hunger and thirst for forgiveness and pardon. In other words, they are delivered to those who hunger and thirst for legal righteousness. Look at Isaiah 55, 1. Look at what Isaiah says. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor and your labor for that which is a, does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon To those who hunger and thirst, he will abundantly pardon. He will give you legal righteousness. He will forgive you and count you as righteous in his sight. He will give you right relationship with him forever. And not only that, but God also promised to the prophet Isaiah a coming transformation of the people of God so that they would manifest this moral righteousness. Look at Isaiah 61.3. It says that when Christ comes, he is coming to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. He's coming to make the mourning and broken into strong and lasting oak trees that will bear the fruit of his righteousness forever. 
And then also in Isaiah 58, Isaiah also speaks about the future, this future people as being those who manifest this social righteousness as well. There are those in, in Isaiah 58, 6, who loose the bonds of wickedness, who undo the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. They are those who share their bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into their house, who clothe the naked and provide for their families. And he says this about this kingdom people in Isaiah 58, 8. He says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. Then the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. These are all kinds of righteousness that the people of God were hungering and thirsting for based on the promises of the prophet Isaiah. They were looking forward to the arrival of this kingdom of God's righteousness. They longed for a right relationship with God. They longed for their own hearts to be transformed with God's law written upon them. And they longed, they longed for a finally and truly just society that manifested the social righteousness. And such longing and hungering and thirsting marks the lives of Christ's disciples to this day. Which brings us to the second point, a deep longing. A deep longing. Christians, disciples of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, long for this righteousness to be manifested all over the earth. Jesus' disciples long for humanity to have right relationship with God. They long for, for right relationship with God. They long for right relationship with others. Disciples of Jesus long for things to be made right with God, right within and right with others. And this longing dominates and defines our lives. If this is not the dominating desire of your heart, I'm not certain that your loyalties truly belong to Christ and his kingdom. In the disciple of Jesus, there's an ache. There's a throbbing pain, a gnawing hunger in their lives for God's righteousness to shine like the dawn. We know that this world is not as it should be. We know that our lives are not as they should be. We've been captivated by this vision of the kingdom of God, and so we're longing for God to come and set things straight. We're longing for God to make things right. We're longing for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're longing for God's righteousness to prevail and permeate the entirety of creation and to go down deep into our hearts and souls. We have a deep longing for such a reality. The metaphor for longing used here, instead of hungering and thirsting, that might not resonate as much with us as it did with the original hearers of this sermon. You know, of course, experiencing hunger and thirst is part of being a human being. We all experience hunger and thirst, but, but this isn't just talking about the kind of hunger you experience when you eat breakfast, and then around noon, you get the tummy rumbles, you know. It's not that kind of hunger. He's talking about a desperate kind of hunger and thirst. He's talking about the kind of hunger and thirst where you're not quite sure where your next meal is coming from. 
Notice it's, it's hunger and thirst that can only be satisfied by the arrival of the kingdom of God. It's a hunger and thirst that Jesus' disciples know and feel that they can't satisfy themselves. And it can only be, it has to be, satisfied by God and the arrival of his kingdom on the earth. It's a desperate hunger and thirst. And most of us just don't know what that is in a land of GMOs and grocery stores. I'm not hating on GMOs. Some of you might feel that way. but Dr. James Montgomery Boyce tells of a story of deep and desperate thirst that took place in World War I, recorded by one uh, Major Gilbert. And Gilbert was leading the battle of the British liberation of the Palestine War in World War I. And uh, he tells this story. Some of the context are driving up from Beersheba, says, a combined force of British, Australians, and New Zealanders, they were pressing on the rear of the Turkish retreat over arid desert. And their attack outdistanced the water-carrying camel train. So they left their water-carrying camels behind. Their water bottles were empty. The sun, it says, blazed pitilessly out of the sky where vultures circled expectantly. Major Gilbert says, our heads ached, our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare, our tongues began to swell, our lips turned a purplish black and burst. Those who fell behind were never seen again, but the desperate force battled on to Sharia. There were wells at Sharia. And if they had been unable to take the place by nightfall, thousands were doomed to die of thirst. We fought that day as men fight for their lives. We entered Sharia Station on the heels of the retreating Turks. The first objects that met our view were the great stone cisterns full of cold, clear drinking water. In the still of the night, the sound of water running into the tanks could be distinctly heard maddening in its nearness. Yet not a man murmured when orders were given for battalions to fall in too deep facing the cisterns. I believe, Major Gilbert concludes, that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on that march from Beersheba to Sharia Wells. If such were our thirst for God, our righteousness, for righteousness, for his will in our life, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit would we be? It's the kind of hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about here. It's an all-consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire to see the righteousness of the kingdom of God shine like the dawn and prevail in our lives and prevail in the earth. Does such a desire, such a longing, such a hunger and thirst exist in your life? Do you long for things to be put right? Do you hunger and thirst for a deeper moral righteousness? Do you long to be more like Christ? Do you thirst for social righteousness to prevail amongst God's people and in our city and in this world? You long to see people in this world made right with their God and creator king. 
If so, I have good news for you. There's a delivered satisfaction that has come and is coming in Christ. Jesus says, blessed are those, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And let me tell you, the, the one uttering this beatitude, he is your satisfaction. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Christ is to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. John six thirty five. Jesus says of himself, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is our feast of righteousness. He is the one who came and became sin on the cross so that we might be the righteousness of God. He is the one who came to make us oaks of righteousness. He is our spirit-filled Messiah come to make us oaks of righteousness. He is the one who came to create the church, God's new people, who will manifest and fight for social righteousness in this world. And so I can tell you, if you're longing for legal righteousness, meaning if you're hungering and thirsting to know God and to be in communion with God and to have right relationship with God, Christ has come to satisfy you. He has lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you deserve to die so that you would be forgiven. He, the righteous one, was counted as a sinner so that you, a sinner, would be counted as righteous. Christ is your righteousness. And not only that, but if you're longing to grow in moral righteousness, and you should be, if you've recognized your own spiritual bankruptcy, as we saw and we talked about what it meant to be poor in spirit, and if you're mourning over your own sin and unrighteousness and you're longing to be transformed, Christ has come to satisfy you. He is the mediator of the new covenant, promised to come and write the law of God upon our hearts. As we looked at when we began this sermon series a few weeks ago, Christ not only delivers this sermon to us, but he also delivers us so that we can live this sermon. He came to transform us and make us new, to make us righteous down deep into the very core of who we are deep in our hearts and souls. He came to transform not only our actions, but the thoughts and intentions and motivations of our hearts. So if that's what you long for, and it should be, I can promise you Christ came to satisfy you and to give you the desires of your heart. And not only that, but if you're longing for the world to be made into a just and righteous place, if you've been abused, if you've been wronged, if you've been mistreated by a boss or a spouse or a parent, someone in power, if you've been under the oppression of an unrighteous person and you're longing for God to set this world straight, if you're hungering and thirsting for social righteousness to be manifested and established on the earth, Christ has come to satisfy you. He came to establish the church as his new people, the new humanity, a people that live together in such a way as we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that there's no one needy in their midst a haven for the abused and needy. 
provision for the poor. He came to create a community and a people that feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the imprisoned and care for the needs of the poor as if they're caring for their very own Savior. You know, the modern accusation that abounds in the West that Christians don't care about equity and the needs of the poor and the disparity between the rich and the poor and the rest of it is really laughable. In all reality, the reason that people in the Western world care about such things, the reason that people in the world care about social righteousness, care about the plight of the poor, care about racial inequality, care about the orphan and the widow and the oppressed, the only reason is because of the influence of Christianity. The only reason is because of the influence of Christianity in the Western world. Before Christianity exploded on the scene in the Greco-Roman world, no one but the Israelites cared about the plight of the poor, the orphan, the widow, the hungry, the thirsty. They were seen as being cursed by the gods. And well, if you went against what the gods had determined, then you're probably going to end up the same yourself. And then Christianity came along, and the God that they worshipped was one who came as a poor man himself, a man with no place to rest his head. He didn't have two pennies to rub together. He's one who came as a baby refugee. He's one who came and died based on an unjust trial, naked, poor, and alone. And he called his people to a radical life of caring and providing for the needy and oppressed. And so Christianity exploded on the scene of the Western world and they started rescuing babies that were abandoned by their parents who didn't want them. They started building and running hospitals. They started building and running orphanages. They started schools that would educate and and teach literacy. They stood before kings and politicians and boldly called them to rule with justice and equity. They called husbands not to treat their wives as chattel, but to love them as Christ loved the church. They called parents not to abuse and to be harsh with their children, but to be gentle, to raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. They cared for the plight of the poor and oppressed. They visited the imprisoned and cared for the sick. They took care of their elderly and didn't cast them aside. And more, and you know what? It has utterly transformed the world, hasn't it? The world is a very different place than it was 2,000 years ago. All because Christ came to bring the kingdom of God's righteousness into the earth and into our broken lives. And it has invaded the lives of his people and created a new humanity who are right with God and who are deeply morally righteous and who manifest and create a social righteousness in the earth. But still, as we look around the world in its current state, as we look in our very own hearts, we still see that things are not as they should be, don't we? We fight for greater moral righteousness in our own lives. We fight like hell. We hunger and thirst and fight and long, much like Major Gilbert was describing in that story a few moments ago. But still, we see and struggle with moral unrighteousness in our own lives. Not only that, but we still struggle and and fight for social righteousness in the church and seek to see it established in wider society, but it seems like there's constantly injustices coming to our attention in the church, outside of the church, in our city, in the state, in our world. 
There's KKK rallies. Abortion continues to be sanctioned by governing authorities. Powerful men abuse and harass women with impunity. And there's much more. We could go on and on. There's much that we could mention and mourn over. And the reality is, as much as we hunger and as much as we thirst, as much as we fight to be righteous, we fight to see righteousness established in our hearts and on this earth, we will not see it in perfection until the return of Christ. It's not within our ability to establish it in perfection apart from our Savior. We must wait for the return of Christ on the earth for the establishment of perfect righteousness. But let me tell you, that day is coming. That day is coming. And when that day comes, Isaiah 9 tells us of the increase of his government and of peace, of shalom, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is coming back. He is going to come and judge the living and the dead. He is going to cleanse this world of unrighteousness. He will renew the entirety of his creation so that his righteousness will permeate everything. Everything as wide as the entirety of creation and down as deep as the human heart will conform to the perfect will of our God. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will finally be fully satisfied forever. And so we're invited. We're invited to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for this kingdom righteousness this morning. That is, we're invited to receive a legal righteousness based on the person and work of Jesus and to be made right with God. Blessed are the man whose sins are forgiven. We're invited to pursue a greater moral righteousness and transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're invited to live into this vision of social righteousness set forth for us in the scriptures. We're invited to long for it. We're invited to wait for it to come, to be established perfectly at the return of Christ. He's coming back for us. He's coming to make God's righteousness shine on the earth like the noonday sun. We will be satisfied. We will be happy. We will be righteous with him forever. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts that we may image your righteousness back to you, to one another, and to this world in need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments for silent reflection before coming forward for the Lord's Supper.